we're going to make a transition. We're going to make a transition from the warm feelings of Christmas. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the plagues. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we're at in the Bible. <laughs> this is where we are at in Scripture. And this is God's Word for us. And oh my, I'm excited to give this message because God used it to affect my heart in some ways this week. And I, I trust God will use it to affect your heart as well. I'm going to say a few things before I read the passage or part of a, a, a section of the passage. There's about three chapters that are covered in Exodus about these plagues. I'm going to cover the first nine and then next week... Um, We'll talk about the Passover and the final plague. Um, but each year, I was—I I noted this this year, uh, this week. Each year on the anniversary of, of 9/11, there's a ceremony that's held up in New York at the site where the names of the 2,983 people are, are read in order to remember their names. And you know, it's generally true that. Most people who live and die in, over the course of their lives are, are generally not remembered. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1.11 says that there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And, and the act of recording and, and reading somebody's name is a way to honor their legacy something about them, the significance either of their life or death, what they stood for believed in. We, we read people's names and we remember something about them. And the chapter 6 of Exodus is an interesting place for a genealogy. Most genealogies in Scripture are either at the beginning of a book or with the introduction of a character uh, to set their context for their history. N none of those apply here. Uh, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron is put right in chapter 6, right before the plagues and the ultimate deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And I noted that and thought, this is an interesting place for a genealogy to be listed here. Well, what is it that the plagues of Egypt represent? What is it that the flies and gnats and locusts and blood and the dead livestock, what, what, what do these things represent? For 400 years, the people of God had been enslaved. And their cries for deliverance turned over the centuries to groans, Scripture said, groans of pain in their slavery. And God heard the groans, which was all that they could muster due to the longevity of their suffering. So for centuries, you have this people that were mistreated and afflicted as entire generations were born into slavery, spent their entire lives in slavery, and died as Slaves not receiving the fulfillment of the promised deliverance. Wondering, 
Does God remember his promise to Abraham when he promised that he would deliver his people and make them this great nation? 400 years of pent-up judgment of God would pour down from heaven in one of the most remarkable series of events in all of human history. God was going to destroy the nation of Egypt over the course of seven or eight weeks. Justice would rain down from heaven as God rescued the oppressed and bankrupted the world's superpower without an army as his chosen slaves would plunder the Egyptians on their way out. And I'm sure that somewhere in Goshen, during that plague of the hail, or locusts, or darkness, all of which somehow missed God's people in Goshen, as a faithful Israelite saw the wrath of God from heaven pouring down on the Egyptians for their centuries of oppression of his people. I'm sure there were thoughts that went to those who came before that were not able to see that day. God said, Exodus 6, 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. And so it is at the outset of this act of judgment and retribution and paying back for the centuries of oppression that Aaron and Moses want their genealogy to be established. They want the names of those whose role in human history was to extend and remind their children who would grow up in slavery of that promise that God had made to them. To faithfully, these people who died in captivity, their role was to faithfully rehearse to their enslaved children a centuries-old covenant that would one day come to pass that a deliverer would come. And so we're going to read the word of God, preserving their names. Exodus six fourteen. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaw, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the son of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimi by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, 
and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Zihar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzapan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Elazar, Ithamar, the sons of Karah, Asur, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Elazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, of whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your promises. Pray that your word would go forward this morning. Amen. So what was it that happened in the plagues at this seminal moment in Israel's history, this seminal moment in our history as believers? Moses and Aaron were told to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let his people go so that they could go out into the wilderness and offer sacrifices to the Lord. The Egyptians detested the sacrifices of Israel, and they detested Israel in general. And so this request uh, was to be allowed to go out to a separate place where they could make sacrifices, and Pharaoh probably understood this as a secret way of escaping from Egypt. And so God warned Moses that Pharaoh would say no, and God would send a series of plagues to punish Egypt. So there were 10 plagues that would come upon them. There was the Nile being turned to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the livestock dying, boils affecting the animals and humans, uh, Egyptians, hail, locusts, darkness, the death of the firstborn, this series of plagues that would come. We're going to talk about these plagues this morning and, and look at some things that God was doing in these plagues. And what was God's purpose in the plague? And I have three things that God was doing um, in the plagues, and those will form our, our three messages. We'll spend most of the time on, on the first one, uh, which was that God was repudiating 
idolatry. Mm-hmm. He was repudiating the idolatry of Egypt. The Egyptian culture was one of rampant idolatry. There was more than 2,000 known gods in the pantheon mm-hmm. of Egyptian gods and goddesses, which represented various significant things, values to the Egyptian culture and political realities in ancient Egypt. This pantheon of gods had different classifications of gods. You had major gods and minor gods and smaller regional gods. And there were different rules about this, where a smaller regional god was only worshipped by the people in a certain region, but he, he or she could be promoted to a higher status. Gods could move from becoming major gods to minor gods. Gods could combine forces together and become super gods and in, in ways that the, as the ancient Egyptian cultural and uh, you know fluctuated, the various gods of a region might be increased to a major god as that region took on more influence and so on and so forth. And so there was this profound sense of national pride in Egypt as well. Ancient Egypt was unparalleled in its military might, its wealth, its prosperity, its architectural achievements. I mean, the pyramids are still a marvel of the world. The things that ancient Egypt's accomplished. It has been called a a cradle of technology as there's been advancements in in medicine. They invented writing, uh, ink, paper, and pen. Uh, They had the first postal service. And they even invented toothpaste, which is a gift that's been serving mankind ever since. <laughs> so we, we have a lot to be grateful for from the ancient Egyptians. But this, this highly civilized place was also highly idolatrous. And this is always true of idolatry, that the creation of the idol is nothing more than an exaltation of the person who created the idol. When, when we worship an idol, we're not merely worshiping the object. We are worshiping the th- person, ourselves, who created the object. We're worshiping ourselves. We're exalting in something about us, our desires, our values, that that thing represents. And we are worshiping that thing. This is why Paul in Romans 1 talks about the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on mankind. He says, because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He says, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Instead of acknowledging that we are made in God's image, we create idols in our image. And we glorify something we value about ourselves rather than God. And so there's always this concern that the people of God and throughout history would adopt the idolatries of the culture around us. And so as part of delivering his people, God is making it very clear that there's not 2,000 gods. There is one yeah. God and his chosen people are not to adopt the cultural values of the Egyptians, not to celebrate the things that Egypt celebrates. They are to worship the one true God. And so we see in these plagues that God systematically takes all of the things that Egypt worshipped and he turns them against 
Egypt. Egypt was ruined by its own idols. Let's talk about some of them. The Nile. The first plague was the Nile being turned to blood. The Nile was a symbol of Egypt's prosperity and wealth and sustenance. It was its proximity to the Nile that gave Egypt its regional power. They used it for irrigation and to the land. They used it for shipbuilding and commercial and military purposes. They, there were plants that grew on the banks of the Nile that became uh, ink for pens, dye for some of the majestic clothing that they wore. They called the Nile the gift of the gods. And they had a particular ram-headed god that was the god of the Nile, and they thought him to be the creator of humankind, a potter who created humankind from clay. The Nile was not just a river that helped Egypt survive. The, the Nile, they, they exalted it to this status of the source of all of life, from whom all of humanity owes its life. And so you can hear the unapologetic self-exaltation of Egypt in that, that all of humanity owes its existence to our river. That, that was the mindset that they had. So God turned that river into blood. The fish died. The smell of death came up from it as the thing they looked to as their source of life became a symbol of death. And then some things started happening because of that. <coughs> the, the frogs came up from the banks of the Nile. I know Shauna loves frogs. She has told me that there was like three frogs on our porch one time, and she thought that was a plague. <laughs> but we read, we read that after the Nile turned to blood, the, the frogs came up from the banks of the Nile into their homes. They were on their beds. They were in their ovens. They were in their bowls that they used for cooking and eating. Their, they, they worshipped frogs. The frogs were a god to them, a sacred animal. This, this sacred animal invaded their homes as God turned that idol that they worshipped into an annoyance and a pest to them. And, and then the frogs died, and they gathered them in heaps, mm -hmm. and everything stank, it says. Mm -hmm. The plague of the gnats. and the plague of the gnats, the... God establishes that the Egyptian uh, magicians uh, were unable to replicate this plague. They, they had been able to do some dark magic kind of things, some illusions, whatever they did to convince Pharaoh, oh, oh, we can turn the Nile to blood as well, or oh, we can make frogs come up from the Nile as well. When Aaron struck the dust and all the dust in the land turned to gnats, which invaded everything, even the uh, magicians were like, oh man, we, we can't replicate this. And they said in verse chapter 8, eight verse 18, this is the finger of God. Mm -hmm. And they conceded defeat as God turned their own pride that they took through their magical arts of being able to harness the power of the gods. God showed Pharaoh the futility of that as well. And then there was the plague of the flies. Mm. 
the wealth of the homes of Egypt was a great source of, of pride that they had. And yet these homes were invaded by flies. In fact, within the pantheon of Egyptian gods, a regional god could only exercise power in his own region. And so as the first few plagues came, there wasn't quite the regional demarcation. It wasn't as clear. But when the plague of the flies came, it, it didn't affect the land of Goshen. That land was spared. The land where the Hebrews were, were spared. And so God was saying, look, <laughs> I'm not just a God that's worshipped over here. The fact that a God that's worshipped over here in this land, it's not some small, minor, regional God. I'm now exercising my power over Amen. in a land where you don't acknowledge me. Mm. That, that was a claim to supremacy, which would have been very well understood the God of the land of Goshen is invading territory where he's not worshipped. And he says, this is why he sent the flies, that you may know that I am the Lord. I'm in the midst of the earth. All of the earth, he's claiming, is my domain. Not just this territory where I'm acknowledged over here in Goshen. It's what he did through the flies in we see the livestock as well. There was this Apis bull, a god, a bull god was a major god. He was one of the top, top gods who represented the, the bounty of the land. And there were many ceremonies allowing bulls to run freely, uh, symbolically fertilizing the land as Egypt took great pride in their wealth and prosperity. They had forgotten that all of their wealth comes from God. And if they had read a little bit of their own history, they would have read about a pharaoh one time who had a dream about seven fat cows and mm -hmm. seven lean cows. Uh, the imagery of that was so clear when you understand what the cow represented, prosperity. And yet it took a Hebrew prisoner, Joseph, to interpret that dream for Pharaoh, and to predict a famine seven years into the future, which would have decimated Egypt, but Egypt prospered because of that. Egypt owed its prosperity to this group that they held as slaves. Mm. And so God sends this plague, all of their livestock dies. Their very pride and joy, the symbol of their prosperity, was gone. And yet none of the livestock of Israel died. None of it. None of it died. As God reminded them where their prosperity comes from. It came because Joseph warned of a famine. It came because you've been enslaving these people. You owe your prosperity to God, to Israel, and to the God of Israel. Now, this idea that a regional God only has power on its home turf is an interesting one. A God only has power, a false God, only has power in the place where it is acknowledged and worshipped. And this is the difference between idols and deity, false gods and the one true God. An idol only has the power that the worshiper gives it. 
An idol only has control over us if we give it that control. But God, the one true God, he has power whether we acknowledge him or not. Right. He has power. He is God. We should acknowledge him, but his power is not dependent on us acknowledging him. And so before we cast judgment on ancient Egypt's, <laughs> I think we should note that idolatry is not a uniquely Egyptian phenomenon. Yeah. It is a human problem. And we'll see in a few chapters how Israel, right after they were freed, they turned to idolatry. And the aftermath of seeing God punish Egypt for its own idolatry. And we'll see exactly why God, in the recording of this story, went through such great lengths to make this point clear that he was punishing Egypt by turning their idols against them. I think it's safe to say that in the pantheon of gods we've created, probably ranges in the thousands as well. What is it that we serve? What is it that we place our hope in? What is it that we depend on for happiness, security, meaning or significance, contentment, identity, pride? What, what are those things that we latch on to and we give that status of my dependence, my happiness can depend on you. Whatever promises the things of the world makes, those idols will always fail on us or fail us or even turn on us. I'm reminded of the words of Captain Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean when he talks about how they took all the Aztec gold, they frittered it away on food and drink and company. He said, the more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths. We are cursed men, compelled by greed. We were, but now we are consumed by it. Mm -hmm. That imagery of food turning to ash. Mm -hmm. Such a vivid picture of the entrapments of the world, that the promises made by the world will turn on us. As God caused the Egyptian idols to turn against their worshipers, the objects of our hope and trust will turn on us. As the Nile turned to blood Food in a glutton's mouth turned to ash. The objects of our heart's cravings will corrupt us and become a curse to us. This is all designed so that we, like the Egyptians, like the Israelites, will acknowledge God and not worship these idols. This is, as Yahweh told Moses, I'm doing these things that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. As he was turning his the idols against him, God was doing something else as well in these plagues. This is our second point. He was protecting and redeeming his chosen people. Throughout the plagues, we see God making this distinction between his people and the Egyptians and protecting his people and, and redeeming his people who had lived in isolation and oppression. The Hebrews had lived in, in segregation, as we said, in, in the land of Goshen, which was given to them during the time of Joseph. 
So Joseph anticipated some things, and, and he got this prime piece of real estate for, for his family of 70 people, which grew to over 600,000 people by the time that they were freed. And he anticipated that the Egyptians would detest them. Israel would come to sacrifice animals to their God, whereas Egypt worshipped the animals as God. Mm. So that was a big difference between them. And so uh, they were detested. Uh, when Joseph was making his final preparations for his family, Genesis 46, he prepared his brothers to meet with Pharaoh, explained that they were shepherds. He says, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So he said, though these people are going to detest you and despise you as shepherds. So you'll live over here in Goshen, separate from them. And so after the fourth plague, Pharaoh actually tries to start bargaining with Moses and saying, hey, why don't you guys make sacrifices, but stay here in the land and make sacrifices here. And, and Moses denies this. He says, because the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord are an abomination to the Egyptians. And he was concerned that the Egyptians would start stoning them if they made these sacrifices. So they lived in this land of Goshen. In, well, it, it was a very fertile land, so it supported their, their livestock as well. But they were also close enough to the capital city to where Pharaoh could oversee them and their slave Labor, So they were close enough to be enslaved, separate enough to be segregated, to not offend the sensibilities of the Egyptians who found them and their dirty practices detestable. They were segregated in the land of their slavery. And yet what does God say through their forefather Joseph? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's how Joseph described his brother selling him into slavery, which led to Egypt's prosperity. And yet the same thing is true. What the Egyptians then meant against Israel for evil, segregating them and enslaving them, was actually the way that God spared them. Because if they'd been integrated and lived throughout the land, how, how would the hailstorm have missed them and destroyed everything else? It was their segregation that spared them. Their segregation became their salvation, as God says, with the plague of the flies. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there with the livestock. But the Lord made a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of e Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And then with the hail only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Oh, God works all things together for good. Even the evil done by the people of Egypt towards Israel was used by God to isolate them and to save them from the destruction of Egypt. And God not only protected Israel, but he redeemed their suffering in a very specific way. This comes through in the plague of the boils, which affected the bodies of the Egyptians and their animals. 
For centuries, Egypt had been beating and afflicting the bodies of the Hebrews. And in chapter 9, verse 8, Moses and Aaron are instructed to take handfuls of kiln. What is kiln? Kiln is the soot from the ovens which the Hebrew slaves used to make bricks as part of their slave labor. So these ovens were heated by fire as they would exercise their slave labor, making the bricks to build the empire that became Egypt. And this soot of those ovens was called kiln. And so they were instructed to grab this soot and to throw it in the air in the sight of Pharaoh so that it became dust all over Egypt and affected Egyptian people and animals with painful boils. What a demonstration of defiance. Think of that. Pharaoh's been refusing, and he's not letting his people go. And Moses and Aaron walk right into the ovens and grab this soot, this byproduct of their slavery. And they walk into Pharaoh's court and throw the soot at him and inflict the bodies of Egyptians with these boils. They inflict bodily pain and ailments on their oppressors with the symbol of their slavery. Scripture says the magicians in the room with Pharaoh couldn't even stand up straight. They were so impacted and afflicted with these boils. As God was not only turning the symbols of Egypt's idolatry against them, God was turning the symbols of Israel's slavery and repurposing it for their own deliverance. What you meant for evil, what what could be more evil, what, what could be a greater symbol of evil than the soot from the fire of the ovens that they slaved over, and yet God uses that as part of their deliverance. Nothing that man can do to you is beyond God's redemptive purposes and repurposing of these things. God was protecting and redeeming. God was also ultimately, and this is our third point, delivering. And in the way that he delivers them, he also repurposes another symbol for them. We talk about God's deliverance as them being saved by an outstretched arm is the language that is used here, or a strong arm, an outstretched arm. In addition to repudiating Egypt's idolatry and redeeming his people, God was saving them. These plagues began to escalate, and uh, as the plagues escalated, Pharaoh kind of went from saying no, 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 to okay, maybe tried to negotiate, tried to bargain with them. He said, well, why don't you just do your sacrifices here? And then he said, well, you know, go, but don't just just have the men go, leave the women and children. He started trying to negotiate, and then he would say, oh, oh, yes, you can go tomorrow. He said, tomorrow you go. And then he hardened his heart, and, and as these things escalated, it finally got to the point where as these plagues came, one after another, 
there was a statement where his, his advisors started saying, hey, Pharaoh, there's, there's nothing left in all of the land of, of Egypt. There is nothing left. God has destroyed us. So he started gaining concessions, and of course, Moses denies these concessions. And in the plague of the hail, God makes this statement. Moses becomes more bold in his confrontation of Pharaoh. He says, for this, this is the word of the Lord, for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Moses tells Pharaoh that the only reason that Egypt even became a great nation was so that God could humiliate them in the face of all nations and exalt himself on the world stage. How's that for winning friends and influencing people to tell the king that you're only here so that God can humiliate you and exalt himself and make an example of you as he has been doing. Oh my, for centuries throughout the long history of Egyptian dynasties, this symbol of the strong arm or outstretched arm had been a sign of great military might and power and conquest. And this phrase was used as, as titles for pharaohs, the pharaoh of the strong arm, they would be called. And this idea of the arm of Pharaoh being infused with the power of the gods was what they thought would, there was certain gods, the god of these transcendent, self-created gods had, would infuse uh, the arm of Pharaoh with their divine power. He was not just a man. He was somebody who harnessed the power of the gods. Military generals would be named after one of these gods was Montu. You could be called a, a son of Montu. If you were a strong military leader, uh, you would ride in chariots oh, with an outstretched arm over your conquered foes. That, that was the symbol. So imagine a, a, an Egyptian army which has just laid your territory to, wet, to, to waste and then the, the pharaoh comes riding in with his outstretched arm to enslave you and to conquer you or kill you or whatever they were going to do. For centuries, Israel had lived under the tyranny of the outstretched arm. And now God told Moses, before the plague of the hail, he said, Moses, stretch out your arm toward heaven, and the heavens would open up. And the fury of God's wrath in hail. Literally, it said fire was falling from heaven. God was redeeming even that symbol of their conquest and repurposing it for his own purposes. That they would no longer have to fear the outstretched arm of Pharaoh because they would be saved by the outstretched arm of God. Yeah. And he was using it now as a symbol that, that we think about the outstretched arm of God and we think about salvation. This is what he told Moses, Exodus 6, 7, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
The prophet Isaiah would pick up on this. He would talk about the arm of the Lord. The psalmist would celebrate the mighty arm of God. Mary in her Magnificat would celebrate the wonders of God, the mighty power, the salvation that comes to us through his mighty outstretched arm. And the mighty nation of Egypt would be reduced from being a global superpower to a footnote in a long list of God's conquered enemies, people God destroyed in less than two months without an army using weather, reptiles, and bugs. He laid the nation to waste. He had no army. How did God defeat a superpower with no army? It was his outstretched arm that needs no army. He needed no chariots. He needed no horses. He needed no weapons. He laid them to waste in less than two months as he poured out 400 years of pent-up wrath on the captors of his people. And he set a paradigm for us for how he delivers people. He set a paradigm for us for how he would later deliver his people through Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come, not in military might, but in the power of God to save us from idolatry, to save us from the wrath of God, to save us by himself being subjected to the punishment of God for our sins, saving us and rescuing us by his outstretched arm of salvation which is able to reach anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And he did this so that our names could not be read in some genealogy of those who died having not received or seen the salvation of God, but so that we could see the salvation of God. Have our names written not in a genealogy, but in the Lamb's Book of Life. Counted among those who have seen the mighty outstretched arm of God delivering us. Not so that our names could be remembered, but so that our names could be forgotten. In order that the one name of Jesus could be remembered. Who we will worship forever after God brings that final judgment on this earth. And lays this earth to waste. And yet spares us in the day of wrath. So that we might not know the judgment of God. But can be resurrected into a new heavens and a new earth. Where we will live and worship our mighty God forever. Thank you. This is our hope. Yes. This is what happens in our hearts as we think of God laying his enemies to waste. But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. If he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. Oh, the the wealth that is available to us is far greater than that which the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, running off with all their gold. We have treasures, we have riches in the person 
of Jesus Christ because he has spared us his wrath, rescued us from the idolatries of our hearts, and given us the opportunity to be called by his name. Lord, I pray that you would come and you would allow your word to have its effect in our hearts. Lord, as we think about what you did so many years ago, all we could say is thank you for rescuing your people. Thank you for showing yourself to be highly exalted above any other God that we could construct Mm. in our minds. Mm. Thank you for saving us from Mm. our sin. Mm. Lord, there are so many that you did not spare the way you have spared us. Mm -hmm. Lord, thank you for isolating us in that day of judgment. And not allowing your wrath to fall on us. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to see that there is one true God in heaven. We don't have to follow these treacherous Mm -hmm. gods. We don't have to live with the taste of ash in our mouths. Mm -hmm. We can live on the sweetness of the honey of your word and the life that it gives us, which never sours on us, only gets sweeter over time. Lord, tune our hearts to that. We want to be people that reject the idolatries of this world and live fully committed to following you, serving you, and worshiping you alone. Yeah, thank you. 